this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 40, and just kind of kind of finish up this uh, last message on mission. And the title of my message is On Mission with Others. And I want to, um, I felt led to actually reread the chapter um, as we come up to these verses because uh, I want us to feel the, the themes here and just the necessity of, of being on mission with others as a family. And I want us to see and hear some of these themes as we read through. And I'm actually going to start back in chapter 9 uh, in verse uh, verse 36, or excuse me, 35. And then I'm just going to keep reading. So um, page 921 is where Matthew 10, 40 is. But if you go back just a little bit, you'll find where I'm starting. I encourage you to follow along. Um, verse 35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, John and Matthew, the tax collector, excuse me, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without paying. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for labor deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is, house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet where, when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you will say are, able to, are to say will be given you in that hour. 
For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. I wanted us to see the whole context because when I was in seminary, the turnkey approach to church planting was not this text. It was demographic studies. It was strategic teams. It was relevant worship. It was small groups. Open the box. Do the system. And get the results. I like to think of it now, as I reflect on it, as church planning for the big box store age. Now, some of this isn't wrong per se, but these techniques only really work in peacetime, when market predictability can be seen. When Christianity has been in the majority, as it has for 
many decades, even centuries in America, it has advantages. It has advantages of wide social acceptance. And indeed, when people do plant churches, it will take on some of the feels of a culture that they're going into. That is true. And we can leverage some of those aspects for the gospel. But we do need to be careful. We do need to be careful because a well-oiled system tailored to a community may help during times of peace, but what do we do when we aren't in times of peace? How will we know how to go into the world and preach the gospel when it is not easy to do so? Would it be surprising to you that Jesus does not describe the effective mission in terms of a turnkey business, like a business already set up and all you have to do is walk in and just turn the key, open the door, and, it, and it, you're making money? What would be lost if we overlooked this chapter in Matthew? Jesus is showing his disciples, ultimately, the heart of mission. He showed that heart back in chapter 9, the very first verses I read. Him looking at the crowds and having compassion for those who were harmed and those who were helpless. It started with Jesus looking at the people around him and having compassion for people which is more important than the methods that would be employed to reach the people. Compassion, taking time to reflect, produced more effect than even a method that was adopted. Now, on the basis of Jesus' teaching, he gives really a very simple paradigm that you might, I guess, suppose call a method, but we ought not get the, the, the cart before the horse. The compassion is necessary in the process of preaching the good news and serving the suffering and looking around for those who are receiving and responding to the truths and then be aware of those who would be unreceptive like family members of the world and then trusting your Heavenly Father through the process. Really, that is a strategy of, of sorts, but it is not highly detailed in terms of do A, B, C, D, E, and you're going to have success. There is a lot of trust in the process, a lot of compassion for other people who are suffering, teaching and proclaiming the good news, and being realistic. But this is a method that transcends either peace or the sword. And so we ought not really look at this as completely just a time for those more sword time periods. This is really Jesus saying, this is, this is paradigm shifting for all time periods. This is how you ought to be doing mission on a normal basis. And Jesus, having compassion for sinners, brought them himself. And that created family dynamics that transcends time and place. And so I want to look at this last little paragraph within this real context, and I want us to, to see how that effective mission occurs when disciples embrace one another as family. 
during wartime and uncertainty and even betrayal by family, people are going to need a church family that loves one another, accepts one another, so that they can see where they need to go. Jesus is not wrong here. He knows the human condition. and He knows what people are looking for. And so I want us to look at this, this text. The first verse here, I believe Jesus is showing us that we need to welcome one another as family in verse 40. And verse 40, I'll show you how I come to this point. But in verse 40, we read, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now this verse is primarily personal, meaning that when you, em you embrace one of the 12 original apostles here that he's speaking to, there is a very quick succession to the Heavenly Father. But there is also some organizational seeds that are thrown into the mix here. They're planted. If you read further into the book of Matthew, and we're going to come to it in time, but in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, there is an organizational sense of this family that Jesus is describing, what we now know as the church. There are organizational aspects and personal aspects that build into this family. Now, we don't all like to think organizationally. Some of us are a little bit allergic to that called concept. I grant it. But a few years ago, I read a wonderful resource called The Trellis and the Vine. Trellis and the Vine, as an analogy, illustrates how a trellis is there to serve the, the vine. It, it speaks for itself. And we build trellises so that the vine can grow well. And every church has some sort of framework to help the vine to grow, the people to grow within the church family. And in this one verse, I, I see like a trellis and I also see a little bit of a vine. And, and help me I'll help you understand how I see this. In verse uh, 40, uh, there is this, this interconnectivity within these relationships. And in the strictest sense... Matthew's text here applies to the first 12 disciples. The first 12, because they're the very closest ones who, who connected to Jesus. They're the ones who then, through Jesus, are connected to the Father. And I think it's important that Matthew pays attention to his, where he says, Jesus called together his 12 disciples. His. Now, you see that in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Chapter 11, the very first verse, kind of the summary of what he just did. It says, and when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he then went on and they went on their way. And... Receiving these apostles is to receive Christ and who Christ represents, who is the Heavenly Father. There is a succession 
that is there, embedded organizationally. And perhaps some of you have grown up in the Episcopal Church or a Catholic Church, and you've heard about the significance of an apostolic succession. The historic church, including Protestants, have always believed that the main purpose of succession from God through apostles was that we take seriously the need to preserve the message or the word from Jesus. And this was the main issue. You may remember the conversation that Jesus had with Peter in which Peter proclaimed boldly that Jesus was the way to eternal life. And Jesus then said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and then the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You may remember that. Well, that rock is the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. That is what God will build his church upon. And the good news is that the called church will be preserved through time. Yet Jesus did say that he would use Peter in the process, and the integrity of the original twelve mattered. Their lives would be given up as an offering. Their lives would be martyred so that the word of God would go forth. And we might be able to remember, I read through the 12 disciples' names earlier. You might remember the 12 disciples' names, but do you remember all the, all the links in the chain till now we're here? I mean, some of us might be able to remember Polycarp, a disciple of John, or Gaius the Elder. Someone might remember from their Catholic grade schools hearing the name Clement or Ignatius. Or... But how many others along the way were faithful in representing the message of Jesus? Isaac Watts penned these rich words which we, we sing. Time like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. And what this teaches me is that the strict need to have an unbroken chain of ordination through the laying of hands of the apostles is not as necessary as having the good news itself. And we do. We have the word of God here preserved for us. We have faithful handing down to faithful men through the centuries. That is the essence of what Jesus is talking about in this text. That if you engage with other Christians who carry the word of God, you have a quick connection to Jesus and ultimately to our Heavenly Father. There is an organizational need, but there is also a personal aspect to this. And I want us to see not only just the trellis aspect, but I want us to see the vine aspect that's, that's embedded in verse 40. Verse 40 says, Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That word receive means to accept. 
It's to accept people with friendliness, to welcome. It's used eight times in these four verses, to welcome. And so, in the personal aspect of receiving those who bring the word of God, you are welcoming others who would be in the family. There is in this verse almost like a deliberate brag. Like how close you are to an important person. Several years ago, there was a network theory developed by a Hungarian poet uh, whose name I, I, I can't pronounce. But he talked about network theory and six degrees of separation. Maybe you've heard about this, how if you really take the time to think about it, you could probably figure out by your personal connection six degrees of separation from almost anyone in the world. That's kind of a crazy thought. And, you know, you might say, well, I know so-and-so who knows the president, right? And you might be able to say, that's my claim to fame. But the network in this verse trumps all human networks. What kind of network includes our loving Heavenly Father? That network comes through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit taking residence within our hearts and the Word of God takes us directly to the throne room of God. What a beautiful network that is. And that network is available to us through His body, the church. A beautiful thing. In this text... I think there could be another way of looking at what I've already said in this respect about welcoming, welcoming others into the network. And that could be said this way, that when unbelievers who become believers are rejected by their own family members, the Lord will reward those who welcome their, them into their lives. There is a, a receptivity that, and there is a reward, and we're going to look at some of the rewards that are, that are described in subsequent verses, but the, the, there is a reward for God's people if we are welcoming others into our network with the Heavenly Father. And I believe that this is so essential to the mission of the church to be effective. That we allow, now some of us may have saved family members in this congregation, and we may feel a certain sense of like, I've got what I need. But there are others who won't have what you have, who will need you to welcome them into their, your lives so that they have a sense that they are a part of the family of God. It is essential for us as a, a church to be effective on mission, to be welcoming others into our midst. Uh, before Jesus died, he looked down at his mother, and he looked down at his beloved disciple John, and he said to Mary, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple he said, Behold your mother. And the next verse is so precious because it says, and then from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home.
That is beautiful. That is effective mission. Admirers will stand at a distance. They won't assemble into a family. But followers embrace one another as the family of God. Some have asked me why we have restructured adult Sunday school and introduced a coffee fellowship opportunity. When I was a kid, church fellowship was limited to the hand greeting time during the songs, like between a song. And I remember that some people would trip over themselves to get to the other side of the auditorium and get back to their seats before the next song took place. But those same people were the first out the door. Or they were holding grudges against others. Welcoming one another is a spiritual discipline just as much as Bible intake is a spiritual discipline. And COVID crippled our fellowship, and we need the warmth of visiting with one another, accepting one another, and becoming family. Time is needed to care for the vine, to think about people, hear their stories, and have compassion for one another. Think of Sunday worship not just as this hour, but of time with one another after the service. We should notice who's missing from the table. Do we hunger for each other's company? Absence from the service and fellowship ought to be rare, especially if we truly are the family of God. Effective mission occurs when disciples embrace one another as family. And in the next two verses, I want us to see how there's different elements of family being alluded to. And I want to take as a broad heading for these three kinds of people within the family. As a broad heading, I want us to see how that family love will be rewarded. You know, we could get... <laughs> We could get our dander up about, you know, like, you know, wh- uh, like, why do I need to be there at the table? There's something to be gained from being at the table with one another. There is something that you will be rewarded for in the accepting and engaging with one another. And I, I think we will miss this if we harden our hearts, and I would encourage you not to harden your heart. I encourage you to listen carefully. The topic of rewards, though, can be confusing for people. But I don't think it needs to be disturbing. I don't think it needs to be that way. There's somewhat of an an awkwardness because we, we know that the gospel is by grace through faith. And so sometimes we we get uncomfortable of thinking about, you know, serving God and having a reward that would come from it. And And I I don't think that we should be thinking along those lines because Jesus has said clearly that if if we seek first the kingdom of heaven, that all these things will be added unto you and that if you lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, 
Jesus is telling us that these things are so. We shouldn't just say, no, no, I, don't, I, I can serve God altruistically. I can do it, you know. The problem is, is Jesus knows our heart. And it's out of the heart that when we make choices, it reveals a set of affections of what we really desire, what we want more. You know, we're always making decisions for what we believe to be is better for me. We choose that which we perceive to be desirable. And Jesus tells us that if we perceive what he tells us to be as desirable, you're not going to lose anything. You're actually going to stand to gain more than you could ever imagine. You will be rewarded beyond what you think you're losing. Jesus, you know, also chose himself what he perceived to be best for himself. He did. He saw that by denying his own life now, he was giving up something to gain that which he would never lose. He saw the reward on the other side of the resurrection as something significant that he was willing to give up in order to gain. We all choose, you know, even, even Eve in the garden chose. <laughs> she thought even before there was sin, she decided, I think that that's lovely, that apple or whatever fruit that was. There wasn't sin involved there yet. She hadn't acted on it. And so she chose what she believed to be better for herself. Thank God we follow someone who chose not the immediate, but could see the eternal. We follow now Christ. And Jesus is the one who is telling us that he intends to compensate us for the sacrifices of leaving one's earthly family and joining the spiritual community of faith. Life in the church will be rewarded. Last Sunday I shared the account, the true account of Perpetua and Felicity. They publicly proclaimed their their loyalty to Christ over the emperor, and they refused to bow the knee to, to pay homage to the emperor, even though he had the power to send them into the arena. And both these women gave up their own natural affections for their own children and embraced the family of God in the arena. Now, they could do this because they had been committing themselves to God already. And when unbelievers are rejecting their family, the Lord will reward those who embrace others into their own family. Those who welcome non-relatives into their own family will not go without a reward. And so the, I, I choose to look and interpret the three groups of people here along this framework of wealth, and the first group here in verse 41a, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. 
So I see in this text a, 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 the idea of welcoming the mature who can explain to us God's word. A prophet's reward ought to be, it has to be understood within a context of a Jewish mindset. First, prophets were a group or a class of people who spoke for God. They talked for God about God's word. Their Bible was the first five books that we call the Law of Moses. And out of that Bible, a very small little testament of five books, they would preach to Israel to say, come back to your covenant obligations. Now, they also foretold, they, they anticipated things that God would do, but overall, their main purpose was to preach the word to people to call them back into relationship with their Heavenly Father. There's a second aspect to this, this prophet that I think would be very familiar to a Jewish hearer of these words about the prophet's blessing and receiving a reward. As Jesus talked about this, people would be remembering that Elijah and Elisha visited the homes of, of widows and barren women and those ladies who took care of them during that time period received a blessing of a child, receiving a blessing of having all of their jars full of oil. And so I look at this text and I see that, and I choose to interpret what Jesus is saying here in the context of what we now know as the church and what he was anticipating. And what he was saying, I believe, is that by Welcoming spiritual fathers, those who are mature, we're creating an environment where effective mission can take place. Jesus said that they will know us by our love for one another. Now that may be very difficult at time, rubber meet the road, what does that look like? That may not always be easy to practice, and let me put it to you this way, I am like a prophet. Now, I don't foretell the future, but I articulate the word of God to you. Pastor Jeremy articulates the word to you. Eric does the same. And welcoming our voice into your life is an important part of being part of a family. Pastors are concerned about your souls, and we want good for you. And to avoid those who seek your best is not ultimately good for you. It's counterproductive. I know that there are times where it seems fearful to talk to a pastor, but we are people too, and we are not perfect. But we can share from you from the Word, and we can help you understand what, what God would want for you, the best that He would have for you. Maybe we've learned some principles along the way that we can share with you. This is for your good, and to receive us is not to go without reward. That's like elders in the life of a family, like fathers serving in a family. 
There's a second group here, I believe, and I'm applying this to the, to the church. Welcome the wholehearted who are following. Verse 41, the last half there, it says, And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is righteous, will receive a righteous person's reward. Now, we have to apply what we have already learned in Matthew to understand what Jesus means by the word righteous here. We've already walked through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've learned that righteousness is integrity, it's wholeness. It's not like the Pharisees who are hypocritical, who, who on the one hand say that they follow God's law, but then on the other side are rewriting God's law to a level that they can handle. That's hypocrisy. And it's, it's deceit. It's not a wholeness of heart. Now, that's not perfection, but a wholehearted person who is honest about themselves and how they stand before God will admit quickly when they have sinned. They're not going to be perfect, but at least they will be people of integrity who will say, yes, I have done wrong, and I need to make it right. That's a righteous person. And in this context, Jesus is saying you ought to be welcoming those kinds of people. And in contrast to that, then you ought not be welcoming those who have a bad heart. And Jesus pairs together prophets and righteous people here to make it clear that it's important, and it will be developed further in the New Testament, that when there are bad apples in your midst, it's not really going to bring you the rewards that you think it will. And what I'm talking about is people who, who, who refuse to change. People who, as you will, wolves in sheep's clothing. Isn't that a great picture? There are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they know how to game the system. They, they know how to project to others. They come to church. They have like it, they appear like they get it all together. But they can be very manipulative, and they can be very toxic, and they can very quickly make you aware that you are to forgive them 70 times 7. But they don't want to make any substantive changes in their lives. They will know that we are disciples by our love and also by our purity. You can read the writings of Paul, Peter, and John and realize that the church had to unwelcome some people who made it a habit to sow discord in the flock. And we ought not to welcome those kinds of people. Rather, we ought to be welcoming into the family of God those who are good-hearted, who are people of integrity, who are wanting to respond and change in their lives. They've got to be honest about their sin, and they confess. And they take steps to change. Not perfection, but they make steps towards change. There's a third group here, and it's in the last verse. Welcome the young. Well, I've titled it, Welcome the Young Who Are Learning. Verse 42, it says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water, cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 
This last example is, is really a clever, clever turn of analogy. He talks about welcoming in these little ones. Now, we instinctively think of children, don't we? When we hear that term, little one, and that's not wrong to think of that. And I think this is actually the first mention in Matthew of little ones or child. And he's going to expand on this theme as the book unravels. And you're going to hear the metaphor of the child as one born of the Spirit in John's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, he'll say, you know, this person who wants to enter into the kingdom of heaven, they have to humble themselves and become like a child. And so what I infer from this is that the tender conscience of a child is the kind of person who will very quickly admit they don't have maybe even a lot of understanding about the deep things of God, but yet they've come to faith, they're hungry and they're thirsty. The problem with adults is that we become calcified when we grow up. We become less responsive to change. Right? That cement starts to settle, right? We can even become curmudgeon. That's a great word, isn't it? It means bad-tempered. That temper probably was already there, but it's become more pronounced as we've gotten older. And I only use this by analogy. I'm not thinking about anyone here in this room as curmudgeon necessarily. I'm thinking about a contrastive illustration to those who are sensitive to sin. Children are sensitive. And children also lack leather. Children lack social significance. They're not the ones who make government policy. At least they shouldn't be. I wouldn't want any of my kids doing that because we might have donuts all the time. Now, this analogy really speaks to those who are new to the family. They've not grown up in the church. They may be adults, but they may be young in their understanding of everything. It might be you. You might feel very out of step. You might feel as though everyone around me kind of knows what to do. I want you to know we are so thankful for you. If that's you and that's how you feel, we are thankful that you're here. And there are no stupid questions. We want to give you a cup of cold water. We're glad that you're here. Giving a cup of water is more about the attitude behind it. Young child doesn't even know that there might be like, oh, around the corner there's all this like great food. I just, I'm just thirsty. And it can be compared to just the very basics of relationship. In other words, someone who's new to the family might feel very awkward about how they're going to come across to other people. We're not to worry. People just want to smile at times. People want to, to know that they're appreciated and warmly accepted. Both are absolutely necessary. Water is 
is necessary and so is a smile. Those are essentials for living. You know, it's really, I think, important for us. We can kind of come to this and kind of say, well, you know, I, I am a kind of a friendly person. And, and, and we can have this vision of being, well, I'm, I'm just friendly all the time everywhere. Even having back fence kind of like cordiality with other people. But we don't really become family until we sit down in the living room together. In the fellowship of the church. We've not really become the family of God until we really spend time with one another. It's astonishing to realize the scope of this text, and I've been very convicted myself as I have studied this text. Accepting Christians is the same concept as accepting Christ. That means that you can't just say, I'm a Christian and I live apart from the church. I live my own individual life, and I don't mix with the body. Jesus says that by accepting the church or his disciples, his apostles, it's the same as accepting Christ, and it's the same as accepting God the Father. There's a straight line that goes right through the cross here, and it brings people of all different, all different backgrounds together. I mean... We ought to be able to have conversation with, with those who don't share the same hobbies as we have. They might not be of the same gender, or, or they have a different marital status than I do, or they have different interests. Well, we have Christ in common with one another. Not a single disciple is left out of this mission if they are disciples indeed. Our primary task as followers of Christ is to become closer to one another. And Jesus knows this. People, as they unify around him, will be an effective force within a world that's either at war or is at peace. Effective mission occurs when disciples embrace one another as family. We need to be a place where people will know that we are his because we have love for one another. Don't be a distant admirer. Be a follower of Jesus Christ. Love the church. Love one another. Don't get frustrated with some of those organizational aspects. They're there. Doesn't matter where you go. But bring the personal in and when the covenant bonds of family and marriage and our society begin to break down even more, draw in closer to the family of God. Let's pray.